You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're thrilled to have Camille Cami Williams as our returning guest. Cami's work as a board-certified behavior analyst primarily focuses on promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion through her advocacy for autistic individuals. She's also a proud advocate of the LGBTQIA community, particularly as a Black, lesbian, cisgender woman. We're excited to welcome Cami during Pride Month to discuss the intersection of autism and the LGBTQIA community and how we can work together to create a more inclusive world for everyone. Kemi, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate it. And this is, uh, I mean, it's its timely for, for a variety of reasons right now. I mean, A, it is Pride Month, but B, is that it seems like this is a topic that we should be talking more about right now to promote some understanding, advocacy, and just some some common under like I guess language around the experiences of different communities. So maybe you can just give me a little bit of background sure. about what you're seeing right now for both the autistic community and of the LGBTQIA plus community, so that we can really start to kind of see you know how their experiences might be different and how they might be similar. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll definitely be speaking for sure more from like the, the communities that I'm a part of, which is not the autistic community, but I think um, in all what's happening right now just with neurodivergence period is this idea of kind of unmasking and that acceptance of unmasking. And then I think also this idea that like, it doesn't always have to look the same, right? So like, you know, I think within the ABA field, um, there is this knowledge and understanding that like each of our clients may be different, right? They may have different needs, they may have different supports. Um, and, and from a logical standpoint, that makes sense. They're different individuals. Um, and similarly within the LGBTQIA plus community, it's the same thing where all of us have different walks of life and all of us, I think have, this foundational, I think both communities have this foundational want and need just to be. Um, one of the things that I always say is for me, like specifically as a Black woman, my life experience is so thoughtful. It's a very conscious experience, typically because of all of the marginalization and the harm and the abuse that comes with that. Um, I believe that as a lesbian, I feel the same way. And I imagine as maybe an autistic person or any kind of neurodiverse person, it feels the same way. So this want to just be able just to be is really, really important. Um, and then of course, to be accepted, there is this huge difference between tolerance and acceptance that um, I think we're really seeing right now in the world um, that, that disconnect. Um, and so I think the beautiful thing within the two communities um, 
is like that, that understanding typically from that firsthand experience of what it's not like to be accepted, what it's not like to be able to just kind of live out loud, whatever that may look like. And so I think one of the most beautiful commonalities that I've experienced both professionally and personally within the two communities is kind of like this ideal, like mutual understanding of like, this is you, whatever that may be, this is me, whatever that may be. And that, and that leading with curiosity versus leading with like that punishment um, that we typically see kind of, you know, in the real world, whatever, whatever that may be. And it's a, a beautiful way to describe it is, is kind of how you were putting it into that context is that both communities are so diverse mm -hmm. themselves. And I would imagine is that different times, it's that masking component. It's like, you know, at trying to figure out how to self-advocate, but also bring in the community to advocate for you as well. Yeah. It's got to be tough at times and when you're when you're talking through that experience and maybe we can talk about it both from from your perspective um identifying as, as a lesbian cisgender woman but um also from the perspective that that you understand for advocating for autistic and neurodiverse individuals where is the challenge of being able to bring the community to accept and respect and empower the unique differences as a benefit to the culture versus something that you know you are trying to hide which makes no sense to me well so to the hiding point i want to say masking whether it's masking hiding code switching whatever i think the thing that people really have to fundamentally understand is it's for protection um there there's so much privilege in being able just to be open and to be out um, and to show whatever kind of your quirkiness is or to show whatever uh, like your neural diversity is like whatever that may physically um, kind of present itself as. Um, so to that point, I think the hardest part about it is helping people to understand it should not be on me or the autistic person or the ADHD person or the ADD person or the intellectually disabled person or the black person or brown person or the gay person, trans person, whoever, it shouldn't be on the marginalized to have to do that. And so I think for me, in any of my advocacy, um, I'm always telling people, like, if you're so passionate about this, right, like, you you want to come with me to pride, you want to, you know, um, put on, like, a, whatever, whether it's, like, infinity loop or a puzzle piece on your car or whatever, you want to, to feel like you are this, quote, unquote, ally, that's a verb you have to actually do something and it shouldn't be comfortable. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and so I think that's kind of the hardest part. I think within the community, um, within both communities that you mentioned, I don't think a lot of us kind of actively have a lot of conversations as far as like how each of us present. Um, because I think we all kind of understand contextually what that, the weight that that kind of comes with, right? So um, for me, like, what does it look like when I'm not on my ADHD medicine? And is it safe for me to actually be, right? And similarly with my clients. Um, but for me, like clinically speaking, a part of my advocacy is starting with the parents, right? 
like I'm not targeting X, Y, and Z behavior because it's not a problem to that person, right? It's not, it's not doing anything, um, you know, to cause them harm or to cause anybody else's harm. So really kind of directly having those conversations to the parents, directly having those conversations to my coworkers, directly having those conversations to the community and understanding that there will probably be consequences to that, right? So what does that look like professionally? That may look like, you know, I tell a parent, I'm not willing to target this behavior. And from a business perspective, they may be like, okay, well, you're not the company for me. I have to accept that. If I'm saying that this is a value of mine, right? The same thing I, is something that I think most marginalized people want and, and expect from, you know, whoever their community is. Um, and that not happening, to me at least, is, is I think the hardest part. So when you're going through that process is that you feel like the communication is something that you're capable of, of having. You're, you're willing to have that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Others haven't, haven't gotten to that point yet where being able to, to ask the questions or to share a value or to um, unmask themselves to somebody who might not know the details of anybody's individual life. Yeah. That's extremely tough. Um, when you're when you're working with and before we get to the intersection and the overlap of the two communities, um, one thing I'd love for you just kind of help help me to understand and our listeners is what is the value of being able to share some of these experiences and even in the moment if it doesn't give you the payoff that you want clinically or business wise or whatever at the moment, but what is the value of having those conversations on a regular basis? And is there something that happens kind of longitudinally? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's something there. There's there's something that's gonna come with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, I am intrinsically, I think at this point, like motivated to see people not suffer. I think especially because I have a very personal um like first fundamentally like personal experience with the harm that it is to not be able to be um I I always say this like when I think about my dad my dad was born in 1955 he saw Martin Luther King Jr. die he was someone who like helped integrate schools things like that my grandmother did housework as a poor black woman for you know well off non-black people you know what I mean so I think when it comes to me personally you know no no pun intended my values on this are a little bit more black and white um I think clinically it's very easy for me now especially to to see the payoff that you were kind of referring to because of the position I am but when I was at RBT Um, Even when I was, you know, only a clinical supervisor before, you know, I was in the position I am now, I was always saying these things. (laughs) I was always doing these things, but I had to really be careful because I did have, you know, maybe supervisors or bosses or whoever who could absolutely impact my basic need of like needing a job, right? Um, 
I think the benefit, though, of really having these conversations, I think the benefit of a lot of these organizations that we have now um, professionally is one desensitizing people, because I think, you know, I think back in the day, there was like that whole like, you know, we don't talk about these things outside of house. We don't talk about race. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. I think we now understand the harm that that did in not talking about them. So I do think there is kind of like this cultural shift, generational shift, I would even argue, of us kind of just normalizing a lot of these hard conversations. I think in normalizing those, it also desensitizes people for us to be able just to have really an open conversation about it, establishing for me the boundary of like, what kind of is my personal value? How how can I ensure that harm is not created, you know, in that space? Um, and then as far as professionally and the kind of long-term benefit, I want to make sure one that I always have my community being a part of my checks and balances. So I don't think I'm like the end-all be-all advocate where I just have it all together, right? I don't make mistakes. I also have to work through constantly the conditioning that I had. So when it comes to my business, I really want my clients primarily, like I'm centering my clients, like the children that I'm working with. Although obviously I do have to involve their parents and things like that. Like I'm not centering their parents. I'm not centering my boss. I'm not, but I'm also not working for a company where my, my, my company would make me right. And so even kind of making those kind of decisions where it's like, in my interviews, I'm asking about the values of the company because I want to make sure that like I'm going to be essentially my values are going to be reinforced, you know what I mean, in action as well. Um, so for me, that long term gain is knowing that my clients can just be at the very least when they're in my care or my BCBA's care or my RBT's care. Um, and it's just so, so important. And for me, that's just, I think, a very small example of like me really trying to like walk the talk. No, and I mean, I could say personally is that probably up until, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, I don't know that I felt comfortable asking all the questions that were in my head. Yeah. Yeah. And by being more confident to say, you know what, it's okay to not understand and to ask somebody their experience to be able to kind of understand the whole perspective of everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. It, it takes confidence. And it also takes the fact that somebody won't get upset when you're asking a question about something you do not personally have experience going through. Um, well, to that latter part though, I don't think it doesn't take the person to not be upset. Cause I think that still is putting onus on the marginalized to like engage in an emotional regulation that like is traumatic, right? Like a lot of these experiences are traumatic. I think what it takes though, is me as the curious person being willing to allow that person to be upset, being willing to own either my individual or me, like as far as like maybe what my kind of intersections represents, kind of own some of that responsibility. And then we're also still sitting at this table, still talking about it. I always think about like, like in a marriage, right? Like we know that there's hard conversations that we have to have with our spouses. And I'm, I can't, I can't expect my spouse to like never get mad at me. Right. I can't expect my spouse to like never emote when, when I've done something wrong or said something wrong, where I've even accidentally like offended her or whatever, but it's that willingness, that mutual willingness, still both ways, understanding, like 
it's, I want it to be us against this thing, right? Not us against each other. And I think there is this really dangerous thing that we try to do when we try to like suppress people's like emotional um, just experiences. And we see that too, I think in, in the autism community, we see that a lot when we think about, when I think about some of the interventions like I was trying to do with my clients back in the day, I'm like, I would never do that. I would never do that now, right? But like being able to admit that, being able to continue to talk to people about that really seeking information, hopefully from them that they can really support me on. I think like that's the key. Yeah. And you articulated that far better than, than I think what I was doing is that uh, for <laughs> me is that I think the, the being frustrated or upset or emotional about a concept versus mm-hmm. it being, well, they're going to hate me for asking a question. And yeah, I think that that's the yeah. difference is that being confident that, you know, I can go into and have challenging conversations because yeah. that brings about better answers usually. And it brings about better understanding because somebody's giving me their raw emotion around it um, versus feeling like, well, they're going to hate me because I asked the question where it's probably going to be the other way around. If I'm never asking this question, it's hard to build trust. It's hard to build confidence. And maybe that's where I'd love to get to that intersectionality between the the LGBTQIA plus community and the uh, neurodiverse community. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lived experience towards the way that the world has been maybe not engaging them on all of the questions and empowering who they are and really respecting every piece of their identity that the two communities have shared. So where is that intersection in your viewpoint? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think for sure within the neurodiverse community, as a society, we've been conditioned and reinforced for infantizing them, for not allowing them to literally speak their minds and and to tell us what they want and to tell us what they need. In similar ways, I think for the LGBTQIA plus community, I don't think we've infantized them. We've kind of done the opposite where we've taken this very hyper sexual approach where we on that side of of that intersection haven't been to just be just regular human beings, right? And so I think think both communities have been so, in my opinion, intentionally misunderstood and intentionally harmed. Um, And by intentional, I mean like we see this in in legislation, right? Like we see this with a lot of big businesses. We see, you know what I mean? I also think both communities have been so heavily capitalized off of where, um, you know, I think especially after June 2020, um, within the neurodiverse kind of community, there's been this big push for allyship. And similarly with with the LGBTQIA plus community years before that, there's this big push of allyship without that true real understanding of like, these are the kind of nuances. These are the complexities. This is how you can show up and and protect me and advocate for me and all these things. Um, So it's it's been really, really interesting though to see those intersections um, because it's just, it's so much harm that has happened, but I think within both communities, um, there's also this attempt, at least for a lot of advocacy, um, but it's really, really hard, I think, especially in a day-to-day basis 
for so many people to kind of advocate where it counts. And so again, like when we think about like legislation, when we think about, you know, the companies that you're, you're working for or just supporting, um, it's really hard for people, I think, to, to kind of put their money where their mouth is sometimes. And both communities, I think, for sure know that and, and feel that. And it's sad. It's, it's really disheartening. So, I mean, do you see it almost as like a, a false flag of allyship? So, I mean, diverse community, you have this, and, and, and we'll put it into like the context of one particular thing right now, but it's almost the idea of, okay, well, we're saying that we want to get to more compassionate care, ascent-based care, yeah. bring the neurodiverse community into decision-making, yet yeah. we still have compliance-based programming that permeates our field on a regular basis which good, bad, or indifferent, we're not having the conversation with, with folks in the neurodiverse community about, you know, why or how or when, or when is it not okay? When is it okay? And bringing well, them in that discussion. I think that's a perfect example. And I think even if we take it a step, I don't know if it's back or further, how many autistic BCBAs or BCABAs or RBTs are they? are there like on the actual demographics of the board like when when we are interviewing someone and and they either disclose their neurodiversity um or they or they don't maybe like vocally um disclose it but maybe their behaviors maybe would indicate that um in our minds right like maybe they would indicate that they are a part of the neurodiverse community. Are we hiring them? Are we putting them in leadership positions? And the reality is, is that we're not. So like, even if we stopped all these compliance, in my opinion, even if we stopped all these compliance programs, what, what are we really doing when, when these same individuals, not only do they not have a seat at the table, um, but they literally like aren't even being like welcomed in the room. Like if we really are being honest. And so I think one of the things that, you know, I think you said it best. There is like this kind of fake, in my opinion, like ally kind of flag going on because I think people really love self-proclaiming ourselves in these very, you know, beautiful lights. But I think if we had to be honest with ourselves, like what are we actually doing with that? It should not be like, this badge of honor to be, you know, a PhD while also being neurodiverse, right? Like it should be so normal. And the reality is it's not. And, and I think that as a field, we've yet, in my opinion, to kind of ask the real questions. Um, I think we, we are kind of jumping on these like new, like hot button kind of issues that aren't really even like skimming the surface of what's really happening. The compliance issue in particular is an interesting one, because again, if you add on the intersection of race, which we all should be doing all the time, um, I think if people like added on that intersection, a lot of these compliance um, conversations wouldn't even be had. We're still looking at this from this very like white lens that that is still causing a lot of people harm. And, and I think that we have to do a better job of like, bringing enough people, all the people, right, in the room to have a more well-rounded, long-lasting conversation about this. Yeah. And if you're going to serve everyone and you're going to be able to kind of work well collaboratively with all communities, of course, everybody has to have a, a very good voice at the table. But on that same lens is that, I mean, when we're talking about not bringing neurodiverse 
folks to the table. I would imagine a lot of our teaching concepts, even from a young age, if we're looking at the LGBTQIA plus community, is that we're not we're not teaching what the diversity of a family could be. We're not teaching the diversity of how somebody might be identifying could be. So you're creating polarity from from the beginning, yeah. which uh, you you see a lot of pushback on both sides of that right now as a society and. Yeah. And there, I think those are discussions that need to be had and be had out loud so that people understand yeah. is that, you know, you're missing out on mm -hmm. a good portion of the world. Yes. Not opening your eyes to this. Well, and, and they're being reinforced for it, right? And I think that's the thing on a, on a very like global kind of sense, it is very reinforcing to not be diverse, equitable or inclusive. So it really does take anyone who holds any kind of like privileged identity, and we all do, we all hold some form of privilege and marginalization. Um, it takes any of us to kind of really leverage our privilege to really understand that like we have to go against the grain. We won't get reinforced for it. In fact, we'll get punished for it. Um, it's gonna be very hard. It's gonna be very uncomfortable. And, and still have that willingness. And, and that's a really, really hard thing to do. And I think, again, we're kind of in this point in time where we're like, oh, I'm an ally. And we're kind of able to like self-proclaim all these things because that's the easier part to do, right? And it's, I think being or calling yourself an ally is um, in my sense, for me, almost like this like false SD. I don't necessarily say it's a S, S Delta. It is for me an S Delta individually, but it's like this false kind of sense, I think of an SD where it's like, I'm a safe person. Like you can come to me, but like, what does that look like if I'm coming to you? But like, what are you doing with that experience and with that information? And it, that's, it's a very hard thing, I think for people to really act on that. Yeah, and and that's that to me is the big piece of the intersectionality, and and that's from an outsider. I'm not, I don't identify in either community, but I'm, yeah. from what I'm able to hear and digest, it's, you know, you have this situation where a I am having to self advocate all the time, and that's exhausting. B I don't know who is truly an ally to my vision and my values and who's going to give me a seat at that table versus is, is, is this person just doing it at face value? And I think that's the hard part, but there are a lot of people that identify in both communities, which to me is like, it's a, it's a compounding of challenges, but also uh, a compounding of things that bring about a wonderful nature to, to the, the human experience is that, you know, I'm, I'm living a very unique experience to what others don't get to see or get to be a part of. So where, I guess we'll start with, am, am I right that there's, that there is a, a, a larger proportion that kind of overlap? Yeah, so um, before we were recording, I was like, I feel like I should look up this statistic. My thumbs weren't moving fast enough, but there definitely is. I think um, there's, I'm looking on Google right now. So, you know, BCBAs who are like, Google isn't research, please don't get upset with me. Um, it does say that for autistic males, and again, I don't know how much, how true this is, but it does say for autistic males, um, they are 3.5 times more likely to identify as bisexual than of non-autistic. 
autistic males. Um, for autistic females, they're three times more likely to identify as homosexual or lesbian um, than non-autistic females. Um, I cannot remember, I wish I could, I'm like drawing a blank and I'm sorry, um, the correlation between like the trans specific identity and the autism community. But yes, like it's, it's very likely that if you are autistic that you may fall within the LGBTQIA plus community. So yeah, it, it's, it's definitely likely. And I think that's another one of the things that as practitioners, like we should know, right? Like we should know again, if, if you're like me and you just have like these little brain stumbles and you can't remember the exact statistics, that's okay. But I think it's important that we know that the correlation is there. And, and it's like, well, what do we do with that kind of responsibility? And it is up to us to, you know, research. It's up to us to really make ourselves aware. Um, and I would argue it's up to us to really personalize their, their love and their protection and their acceptance as a personal value, right? Like it's it's not good enough, at least in my opinion, for me to like have a just kind of pro-human kind of approach professionally, but then I'm coming home and I don't have that approach personally. I think we really have to kind of instill these values um, on a very personal level so that they can generalize to the professional level. I don't know how right I am on this and you can correct me, but there is not a large, I guess, education piece towards BCBAs, towards the treatment community that empowers that overlapped identity right now. And I don't know that I, I, I don't know that there's a lot of support groups that are out there to create a louder voice to be able to help educate those that maybe don't understand, which maybe I'm in that group as far as I don't know where to go to understand the experience and how to be able to incorporate that into my life experience to say, how can I be more welcoming, empowering, understanding in my teaching methodologies, in everything that I'm doing to empower a family? Um, are there support groups out there? Are there groups that are really focusing on helping to be able to empower the voice of those communities? Yeah, um, so I always recommend that people look outside of our field since compared to other like disciplines of psychology, our field is very young. Um, I think we as BCBAs, I don't know what we're afraid to do that. I, and I do know we're so taught like to only look at our own research and all that stuff. But I always, always, always suggest that people look outside of ABA um, because the resources are there and we should be able to generalize. Um, besides that though, the main one I can think of off the top of my head is sex ABA, sex ABA. Um, Warner, Leler, Warner Leland, excuse me, and Dr. Barb Gross um, are, they, they put on this conference every year and the amount of learning that we do, um, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, and the people who present, they're presenting from all disciplines of ABA. Um, they are people who have been doing this work for years and years before, you know, especially like with the rise of social media before many other groups may have been forming. I highly, highly, highly suggest that. One of the things that um, I learned a few years ago is contextual behavior science, their group, um, ACBS, I think it is, 
Um, they also have a lot of, I don't know if they're formally called like special interest groups, but whatever ACBS's special interest group name is, I don't know. Um, they have a lot of special interest groups, um, but a lot of the journals also that if you are a member of ACBS, a lot of the journals that you have access to, they also have a lot of research and a lot of information there too. Um, those are the two I definitely would recommend. Um, I also recommend BABA, Black Applied Behavior Analyst, um, because there are so many of us who are working within multiple intersections. Um, and a lot of us have within our scope also um, that advocacy piece and that awareness piece as well. Um, but really primarily, I can't overstate this, I highly suggest people look outside of our professional organizations, especially knowing if we add on another intersection of capitalism, um, our professional organizations do gatekeep a lot. I definitely encourage anybody listening to this to look at your local or even your statewide um, LGBTQIA support or resource center. That more than anything else I've said out of all the groups I just named is where I would recommend going, especially because a lot of the the financial support that you're able to give will go directly into the community. And that, that makes a ton of sense. And quite frankly, I'm always humbled by the fact that every time I, I feel like, hey, you know what, I'm starting to understand a little bit more. And it's like, oh, there's a whole nother window and there's a whole nother door. And there's, but it, that's the joy of the field. It, that's the joy of life in general is that there's always something else that you can learn and be able to grow from. And by reaching out, outside of the field is that that's, that's, those are perspectives that are needed to make you a well-rounded clinician, to make you a well-rounded individual, so. Yeah, for sure. I love your willingness. <laughs> I try, but it's tough. I mean, there's so much out there. And in order to be able to really understand everything, it's, you have to understand that you'll never understand everything. So, but, um, so how can we go about creating this more inclusive environment. And, and maybe I'll look at it as far as how do we take what we're learning right now within the, the field of ABA and our understanding of the, the needs of the neurodiverse community as they're expressing them. And also take into effect that you just gave those statistics that, that well, Google did, <laughs> that, gave, that gave the understanding anyways, that, you know, there's a, there's a big chunk of, of the population that experience both communities and have perspectives that this is my life, my lived experience, and you need to take that into account. How do we empower that? How do we create inclusion? How do we make sure that we're respecting that whole process of somebody being unique and being individual? I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about, you know, any of like the tools that we may use, especially like when we're teaching children, always kind of thinking like, who are we including? Who are we leaving out? And kind of questioning that, like, why are we leaving them out? All, all the things. So I think in very, they sound, I, they seem almost very simple ways, but they're really big ways, like including like something so simple as like on your stimuli, like when you're teaching, you know, and you're using, you know, your stimuli for your clients, what does that look like? Do, do all the people look the same? Are all the people able-bodied? Are all of them like gender conforming? Like, you know what I mean? Like really kind of paying attention to that. Um, I know one of the big ones for me 
I always try to empower people to do in like their everyday language is modeling a sense of neutral, like a neutrality, knowing that not everyone is able or is safe to disclose their sexuality in particular. So one of the things, even as an out lesbian and, and knowing though that it's a privilege to be out and also knowing that I also suffer consequences for being out, I try to use words like spouse versus like wife or husband. Reason being is because if I say spouse, and no one else is saying spouse, but people typically, because of how I present, assume I have a husband, and then I have to make a very difficult choice in that moment. Am I going to out myself and, and risk whatever may come? Or do I pretend I have a husband? I'm not going to pretend I have a husband. So typically, I take the risk, but also knowing that that's a privilege. Um, when it comes to um, other things like with stimuli, like also asking you know, your client, um, kind of what they like and what they like to see and honoring that. I've had clients as young as like five or six where, you know, they may present one way gender wise, but they ask me to call them a different name and me just honoring that and, and not feeling kind of icky about it. Right. And not only honoring that, but also like asking the parents like, Hey, like, this is what so-and-so said, like, we need to honor this kind of generalizing that education and that value to the parents. Um, I can't overstate like lived experience is data, right? And so there are a lot of people who don't believe that, um, a lot of clinicians who may not believe that. And that can be really scary, right? Like, but if you also think about who has access to research, who has access to the publication journals, who has the ability to do all this research and get published and probably not get paid for that publishing, you know what I mean? Like you can kind of imagine that the the average Joe Schmo like like me, we're probably not some of the people that are going to be published. So also kind of listening to people and taking what they're saying as data, I, I think that's a that's a huge one too. Yeah, and I, I think I hear this permeating throughout every conversation I've ever had with just trying to be able to provide appropriate levels of care and support. Yeah. If you don't bring the individual into the majority of guiding your clinical treatment, yeah. is that miss the boat? And I mean, whether that's getting it directly from the uh, neurodiverse client that we might be talking about, or their family who maybe is representing some of the family values that exist, yeah. and is that you're you're automatically setting it up where it's almost pejorative in the way that you're teaching, and that's yeah. not. The I agree. I don't think kind of going back to what you were saying, education wise too, I don't think a lot of programs go into details on like the how, right? Like, or I don't honestly, I don't even think in my program, I'm trying to remember if I was ever like explicitly taught, like really I should be trying to meet the client's needs, not them meet mine. I don't know. I, I hope at least and my memory may hopefully just be failing me, but I don't know if I was really ever taught that. And so everything that you just said, like within our programs, it is just so important that we're taught that piece or else, you know, it's because it shouldn't be about us, right? It should really, we are in a human service field mm -hmm. and it should be about that. And what, what you just said, I think that's a huge piece that's oftentimes missed. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, when you're thinking about where things are going to go in the future in, in this utopian view, I love to think in utopia because it gives us something to strive for. Is, is that the big piece to it? Is it saying that, you know, we really need to think about 
respecting and honoring and empowering individuals and uniqueness and and people's ability to be able to kind of bring more to the world versus constrict the world and is that is that where you're hoping that everything is is moving not just in the field of yeah. media, but just culturally for us yeah i always say like my goal in life is to not only model but also to like prompt other people to really start practicing and then eventually living by the goal of like centering the most marginalized person within whatever context we're talking about. Understanding that like, I won't always be the most marginalized, right? Understanding that, you know, you may not always be the most marginalized, but really kind of centering them and then acting on that. So clinically saying like, okay, well, if we are, you know, a diverse, you know, um, company, or if these are my values, my team should be reflecting that, right? My clients should be reflecting that. Um, me centering, like you said, the family and their family goals for the client, um, that client specifically, they should be reflecting that. Um, and then also generalizing that, right? Like everything about my life should be reflecting that. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to mess up. That doesn't mean I'm not going to be offensive, but it does mean that I'm willing to like perpetually try to create a world where like, you know, our children and their children don't have to even think that some of these things are a big deal, like in this bad kind of sense, like a lot of us are, are learning how to work through. Um, so yeah, I think everybody not only should have a seat at this one big table, but everyone should have their own tables and their own seats. And maybe it's not a chair, maybe it's a bouncy ball. Maybe it's, you know, not sitting down at all. Maybe it's like just jumping up and down. You know what I mean? Maybe it's hand flapping, maybe it's whatever, whatever the thing may be, everyone should be able to just simply be and, and be safe doing that. Uh, and Gammy, I appreciate just, and this is twice now where I think that uh, you, challenged me to actually kind of as I'm going through the thought process to I guess own some of the own biases that I that I inherently have is that and, and we all have histories I mean we all have things that we've learned and been taught and it's okay that that's but it's challenging those that's that's important and challenging my ignorance to certain things that maybe I never even thought to think about so I appreciate these conversations because I think that it, it makes me it makes me get to the point where you know I I challenge the way that I'm living and, and thinking through things. So um, I hope to have you back on again and we can continue, I guess, Jeff's therapy, but uh, <laughs> and hopefully we can continue to kind of challenge everybody's thought process through this. Thank you. I appreciate y'all having me. I so enjoy talking to you. So thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.